Welcome to MarketScale's Digital Marketing Professor Series. I'm your host, Landon Jones. Here to talk to us about the importance of research and innovation in an industry as dynamic as digital marketing is Yuping Liu Tompkins, a professor of marketing and the director of the Customer Analytics and Strategy Collaboratory at Old Dominion University. How are you doing today, Yuping? Great. How are you, Landon? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And thank you for coming on the show today. No problem. You know, digital marketing seems to be one of those industries that's always in flux. How have you been able to adapt your approach as an educator in order to stay up to date within this industry? Definitely uh, teach digital marketing is more of a challenge, I would say, in the uh, marketing curriculum because things are changing so much. Even if you look at textbooks, for example, you know, what was useful probably two, three years ago really need to be updated with all the new tools and with all the new ideas that have been generated in the marketplace. So for example, if I were to teach, let's say, something related to viral marketing, the examples I probably used five years ago versus what I would use today in my teaching would be very different. You know, you wanted to stay up to date with some things that the students actually know and understand can relate to. So um, that's one of the challenges I would say. And I started, I used to um, actually even use textbooks, but nowadays I try to compile my own materials based on what's available on the internet, uh, as well as some of the case studies that are popping up. And so sort of creating my own mix and match of materials in order to make it the most relevant to the students. And I'm sure your personal research plays a big part in this as well. Yes, definitely. So um, one element that sort of creates the synergy in my work is that, you know, I do research on the side and a big part of my research relates to digital marketing. Um, I look at, for example, you know, the use of user-generated content, look at consumer reviews, looking at um, the engagement in social media, and all of that is very informative towards what I do in the classroom. So sometimes I you know, introduce some of my research project in the more accessible forms um, into my classroom. And students get excited about that because they can see that what your professors are doing in the research process is actually really relevant to the practice and is something that they can understand. Sometimes, you know, uh, you inspire people to actually go towards maybe one day I can do, you know, research and all of that stuff too. You recently published some research on loyalty programs would you mind explaining that research to us? This was a paper that I work with a co-author in Europe. And what we were looking at was um, the whether changing a loyalty program expiration policy, that is, you know, how long it takes for your points to expire in the account, whether that how that drives consumer behavior. And the reason behind that uh, research program was when we were Starting to think about loyalty programs, a lot of businesses have the hesitation because it does create a pretty substantial financial liability because, you know, customers can try to redeem points all the time and eventually you're going to have to give them something, even though in the beginning you might be able to um, reduce the cost of your promotions. And so because of that financial liability consideration, a lot of companies, including airline companies and others, have um, tried to reduce their uh, expiration policy. So used to be maybe um, you your points would be able to stay forever. Um, now it becomes maybe 36 months of inactivity, your points would expire. 
And so we happen to have a, a situation where we um, have contact with a convenience store that had decided to do a policy change. So they went from no expiration policy at all to eventually having a monthly expiration policy. That's a, that's a pretty drastic change in terms of how you know the program actually works. And so we got data to look at consumers' behavior before and after and wanted to make sure that is this something that the company should be doing? Would it create a drastic negative reaction from the customers? And we were a little surprised by the consumer reactions. I mean, there are, you know, individuals obviously would reduce their purchases after the, the purchase. But overall, we actually saw an increase in the um, an increase in the purchase behavior on the overall level. And so we went a little bit deeper to try to understand what it is, like what kind of individuals are actually doing that. And we combined that with some survey data of the same customers. And what we discovered was that a big part of driving who responds to it um, better or worse really is dependent on whether consumers are having some sort of flexibility in terms of dealing with the with that kind of policy change. So in the case of customers who used to go to maybe store A, store B, and store C, three different brands, and having that kind of expiration policy sort of pull them back to the main store to say, okay, now that my points are going to expire, I really need to focus my effort onto my main you know, this main store or main brand where I have the loyalty program. And so that sort of provided the incentive for them to concentrate their purchases so that they eventually become the single loyal instead of what we call polygamous loyal um, customer. They turn into a single loyal uh, customer to the store in order to make their points work in their favor. And so that was I would say that's a little bit surprising to us um, when we saw those outcomes, and but it makes sense once we dig into it. And we also try to replicate the same thing in a more traditional laboratory environment as well to reduce the noise. And we essentially see similar things, you know, where people have um, that multi-store shopping behavior. They are pulled back by the by the policy and are able to concentrate their shopping at the main store. Drawing from your research and your professional work, what would you say is the most valuable skill that your students can possess when they enter the workforce today? I think today's marketing world is changing faster than it ever has been. So when you think about 20 years ago, uh, maybe like 40 years ago, you know, when you go into a marketing program, you learn about the four P's. Um, everybody knows about the four P's and, and you're good. You know, you might need some creative ideas to generate big ideas for campaigns and things like that. But your general principle of, you know, segmentation and all of that stuff doesn't really change very much. But I think today's students go out there and probably in 10 years, they're going to find the marketing out there to be very different. They're, I don't know if they're still going to be using Facebook. They might be using completely different platforms, completely different tools. So I think what the challenge that creates for the students is that they need to be much more adaptable. And it also indicates a need to really learn on the job, also constantly be learning about the marketing field even after they graduate. So 
I believe at ODU, we try to train the students in a way such that they will be more adaptable. So they understand the fundamental concepts of, for example, digital marketing or you know, marketing analytics, um, but they are trained in terms of the way to think. Right. So in my web analytics class, for example, I teach them the tools of using Google Analytics, but it's it by itself is more of a tool. So I think what I try to give the students the ability of is to be able to look at that data and to be able to interpret that data so that in the future, no matter how the tools actually change, your fundamental way of thinking is still available there for you to be able to adapt to. So I think that adaptability is definitely a really important skill set for students these days. Oh, absolutely. One thing that I think we're seeing marketers adapt to today is their customers or potential customers' use of multiple devices. So we're having to stay consistent across multiple platforms like television, social media, print advertising. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's one of the big changes that are actually happening. Um, in the past, you know, when we look at how you determine the messaging channels, typically, like you said, it's something that you are determining based on the demographics, based on how people are different from each other. So you might think of the online population being different from your print population, being different from your TV population. But I think that because technology adoption has been so saturated at this point, when you whether you're looking at social media, where you're looking at um, the you know traditional online mechanisms such as websites, there are you know people are pretty much everywhere, and a lot of people are using multiple devices at the same time. I know my students are you know they're watching TV while they're doing homework while they're on the computer while they're you know maybe having the mobile devices playing something so there are a lot of these things that are going on from the same individual perspective going across the different channels actually at the same time or sometimes slightly sequentially um exposed to different devices. So I think there's an increasing need for marketers to understand that behavior to say, okay, I am not targeting the mom generation with the TV and I'm targeting the younger generation with the social media. Actually, they're all everywhere. So how do I more of focusing on the moment and try to capture the right moment with the right individual so that I'm sort of surrounding, if you're going to think of surrounding the same individual, individual 360 degrees with that consistent brand story, whether that's the Twitter messages I send, the Facebook postings I do, the TV commercials I do. So all of that needs to serve that one single purpose to capture that moment of interaction with the same individual. I would say another new branding tool would be the social media influencer. How are you seeing marketers utilize that tool today? So when the when the word influencer marketing first came out, we we're thinking about people who probably have millions of followers in social media channels where if they say something about a product, it's going to be have a very wide reach um, to a very large audience. I mean, that still definitely exists today, but a lot of brands are coming to realize that one thing is um, there is 
influencer marketing is actually getting really expensive as well. So something used to be a really good thing for small brands to try to leverage. Now it's almost non-approachable for a lot of small brands now too. And the other thing too is that because of this chase after a wider reach, you are not really sure whether this person really does have like a million followers or maybe 20% of that or even 50% of that might be something that's not really represents influence. And so I think because of combined changes and also the increasing need of the younger generation, they're looking at brands, they really want things to be authentic. So when they have this conversation or they have this experience with the brands, they want the brands to have this authentic voice towards them. And a lot of people now, because of the popularity of influencer marketing, people are looking at these influencers, they know they're being paid you know, high dollars by the company in order to say something. So in many ways, they're no longer that different from the, you know, the old celebrity spokesperson kind of type of advertising. And so I think that authenticity of the original influencer marketing is lost a little bit. And what I have seen is more of a trend going back to the more authentic individual to individual social influence so that you have, you know, one person your average consumer, essentially, that has already had a good experience with your brand, when that person goes out there, be your evangelist and be your spokesperson out there towards his friends, towards his family, that actually becomes a much more powerful message than somebody who is paid to go out there and talk to people about you. So so I see really in the future of this influencer marketing is coming back more to identifying the individuals who may have good influence in their network, but who are also your actual customers and who has had positive experience about your brands and having those people go out there and carry the message to their social networks to create that same level of influence that maybe a giant super influencer will be able to do. And uh, the other thing, too, is that a few years ago, I did um, some research on viral marketing. And um, one of the findings that I have um, from that research was that a lot of times when you look at people who with giant network sizes, so these are people with a lot of followers, their connections with what we call connection strength. So basically how strongly connected you are with the individuals that are following you. The connection strength is typically lower. And, you know, it's understandable because if you are a celebrity of some sort, everybody knows about you, but do people really know you? Not necessarily so. And do you really know your followers? Not necessarily so either. And so, so that's the downside of those super influencers where, they might have a wider reach. So if you want to get your message out to a really big audience, they're definitely good for that purpose. You know, my research, for example, find that if you're seeding viral videos, the first generation of people you reach out, the ones with the big network size is definitely helpful. But awareness is only the first step of your marketing, right? A lot of times you need to persuade customers too. And that's where I think having those super influencers is not really sufficient to achieve those later stages of persuasion. You really need to get into the more authentic messages through your authentic customers um, to have that deeper level of influence. Are there strategies that can help these sort of like micro influencers happen naturally? A lot of natural engagement can be going on because, you know, from authenticity perspective, if you can 
rightly engage your customers in the social media space, you're doing something good. You'll make your customer wanted to talk about it. That already creates a level of sharing and resharing, you know, through their social networks and creating the influence you're needing. At the same time, I, I that's I would say is a big piece of of what you're doing with these micro influencers. And then on top of that, I would also say, you know, um, companies are generating incentives for doing those sort of things too, but not at the million dollar deal level with a contract with some individual who barely knows about a company. These are more of incentives, little incentives provided to um, maybe, you know, if you share this message, you will create, you will get some kind of discount in the store, those sort of things. I mean, it's financial incentive based. Some of them are not non-financial. It may be something uh, with a soft benefit. You might be getting your profile feature. For example, you know, if you uh, have the have it sharing to your friends at a certain level, and so so through these incentives, it's kind of like in addition to the actual engagement activities to remind consumers that there's a need to share. We want you to get our words out, and I think that if you really do have the authentic interaction with your consumers, they will want it to help you. Right. The, uh, they like your brand. They think you're authentic with them. It will create more of that that desire for them wanting to share things about you. I think that, you know, one of the things that I see now more and more brands are doing is to to create that more of a brand story element. And um, when you're looking at maybe 20 years ago, you know, in marketing, we are talking about brand identity. Right. We are talking about brand positioning. We are looking at the different product attributes, the different ways consumers perceive them, how they should position brands in a different way. And I think that brand story is a is a deeper level of connection where you're really creating more more or less of a storyline evolving around around the the brand. And so it involves how the brand was created. You know, it look at how the um, how the brand story kind of evolves over time. So how you know this brand was initially founded by the founder, how it went through, what it went through. Maybe there were difficult times, and how the brand bounces back. All of those different things are becoming part of that communication message or communication package the company is having with their in, with their customers. And uh, another difference is also that during these times. The brand story is not just something that's created by the meth, by the company anymore because of that social media environment where users are creating their own voices about brands. You know, you see plenty of examples of memes where, you know, the uh, people creating different versions of the same thing with their own creative idea. And so the same thing with the brand stories as well. You know, every interaction that you have with your customers, some of them positive, some of them negative. And when that comes out through the social media, that kind of contributes back to your brand story. So I think that from a brand perspective, it's a opportunity to kind of develop a richer perspective of your brand to say, this is my whole thing. It's kind of like when you think about uh, maybe dating someone, getting to know someone at the beginning, you know, you kind of start to tell your life stories, tell what happened to you. And, you know, through the, all those kind of interactions, that's how people really get to know you. So I think brands is sort of taking that perspective as well, is to present more of the holistic 
element of of this brand experience to the customers. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I think that being consistent across those multiple platforms, TV, print, social media, that just adds to the authenticity when you're seeing the the same consistency across those different places. Definitely. So the uh, that's one of the one of the challenges I think for companies is that you really kind of have to uh, you know, walk and talk the same way, or, you know, in the old days, if you don't, you might be able to get away with it because people don't really know what it is you're doing. But now you're walking, you're talking are all pretty exposed to the audience. And that kind of creates more of a accountability, you know, of what you say you do or what, who you say you are, people are going to see if you are going to be the way you are. Yuping, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Landon. And thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com backslash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Landon Jones. Until next time.